Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. There hasn't been a whole lot to laugh about in British policing for quite a few years now. This podcast is all about what it was really like to be in the British police for the last 30 years. In the podcast, I'll talk about all the different jobs that I did, and I'll interview people who also did some really interesting things. I'll give you my thoughts about what's been going on recently in the news to help you understand how it all works. Spoiler alert, it's not like it is on the telly. This podcast is the real deal. I'm going to be discussing some quite disturbing things from time to time, so listener caution is advised. There may also be a bit of swearing, so best to keep the kids out of the room. Everything I say and have written comes out of a place of great love for British policing. You may not agree with it all, and that's okay. But all I ask is that you listen with an open mind, and if you go away feeling that you know a bit more about what policing is really all about, and perhaps have a bit more empathy for police officers, then I've succeeded. So, here we go. Hello everybody, it's Ian here. Welcome back to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. Thanks very much for listening in again. Um, and a, another kind of um, shout out to those who have uh, rated and reviewed on Apple Podcasts. I'd be really super grateful if if you could just take a, a few minutes out of your day just to do that. Um, I'll read out a couple of recent ones here, which uh, it's always nice to do, just to acknowledge people doing it. Um, I've got one here from Anita. Um Fascinating. Five stars. Fascinating. Like everyone, I have my own prejudice regarding the police, mainly influenced by the media. So, having listened to all episodes to date, I can honestly say that Ian has challenged my thinking. The series provides a fascinating insight into modern-day policing, and I've already enjoyed it. I'm sorry, I've really enjoyed it. So much so, I've shared it with my daughters. One's a teacher and one's a lawyer as a valuable resource. So, thank you very much, Anita, for that. Uh, another one here from Isaac. Uh, five stars. Uh, I love this podcast. Really fascinating to hear about the police from someone who knows what he's talking about. That's uh, nice. Uh, somebody acknowledges that. So that's great. Thank you, Isaac. So so this week I'm going to be interviewing uh, my old boss, actually. I've been really looking forward to this because I haven't spoken to him in ages. And um, really looking forward to doing that. I'm actually going to be sat physically with him to do that for the very first time. So all of my other podcasts so far have been done remotely, which uh, is fine. But uh, there's just something, I suppose, about sitting face to face with someone. Uh, you get a different dynamic. So I'm looking forward to, to that and just seeing how that works. Um, so Clive, uh, Clive Burgess, his name is. Uh, he's a uh, an ex-senior police officer in the West Midlands Police. He was um, a temporary assistant chief constable before he retired, but he was my superintendent and my chief superintendent uh, in several different at several different times. And um, I've got a lot of respect for Clive uh, on both sort of a personal and professional level. Uh, he's extremely experienced police officer, um, very much. Uh, one of those senior officers who has done it uh, himself and doesn't just talk about it. Uh, it's not just something he's sort of learnt on a course or something like that. Um, he, he's really done it and understands policing inside out. Um, 
really interesting character to work for, uh, very demanding uh, in many ways, but but also a very decent human being. And I certainly saw uh, his very compassionate side, as well as his slightly scary side um, from time to time. So yeah, looking forward to doing that later on. Okay, folks, I just uh, jumped in and out of my time machine. And here we go with the interview with Clive. Okay, so here I am in Clive Burgess's rather echoey, I was going to say partly finished, but it's barely started, is it? <laughs> Living room. In, um, so when I pulled up outside your house, Clive, um, I was half expecting Mrs. Tiggywinkle to come to the door. Or Peter Rabbit, let's say, because of all the places I would have expected you to be living, I'm not going to say exactly where it is, but let's just say it's a very quaint and rather beautiful um, village in the middle of nowhere. So, so yeah, thank you very much for agreeing to come on the podcast. And um, do you want to just sort of briefly introduce yourself in terms of um, how we knew each other, what you did, um, etc.? Yeah, um, Clive Burgess, I'm. Uh retired police officer uh, from West Midlands Police, um, served mostly in Coventry and Birmingham. Uh, first met yourself uh, probably, I think, think it was about 2005, 15, 15 years ago, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, when we were both working at Stetchford. It was Coventry actually. Was it? Oh, yeah, yeah. you were a sergeant. Yeah, yeah I was a sergeant at Coventry. Yeah, 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 yeah. You were, you were, were you a DS? I was briefly at DS. Yeah, you were sergeant at Cov, and then you came over, didn't you? To I went over to Birmingham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a, I think I went over as a chief superintendent. He did. And then, um, and then you came and joined us as an inspector, didn't you? I did. I did. Yeah. So our paths sort of kept on crossing, didn't they? So, um, so yeah. So I, so I, um, I was a sergeant at the time. I was a uniform sergeant. Um, having just transferred up from the Met, um. And I briefly was a DS, absolutely hated it, like beyond belief. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Did you come and bail out, come and see me? And yeah, I did, yeah, I bailed out. And then, because I was so super stressed. I mean, it's one of those things in life where you, um, you, think, you think you're making the right decision about a job. And then when you start doing the job, you realise I've made a terrible mistake here. And, yeah. and I just realised that it was stressing me out too much. And um, and I came and saw you and said, I want to go back to being a uniform sergeant again. Which is which is sometimes really hard to do, but always the right thing. And, and it happened to me. It happened to me twice in, in my career. When I was, when I was um, a, a young officer, I became DC, and I ended up working in... Um, in an environment that I wasn't particularly comfortable with. Mm. And um, cowardly, my, my way out of that was to uh, to pass my exams and get promoted. Mm. Um, and, 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 and more latterly, at the end of my career, when I was spent a, a spell working in HQ, um, again, didn't feel particularly comfortable. Yeah. Um, and, and kind of, you know, when you start somewhere and you wish you'd got your old job back. Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, sometimes that's just about not, you know, understanding what the job is and, and it takes you maybe some time just to sort of get the hang of it or whatever. But there's some jobs you do, you just think, I absolutely hate this and I just can't wait to get away from it. And being a DS was one of those jobs. And the other job I felt like that about was being a staff officer. I absolutely hated it. 
Well, that's full of politics, wasn't it? And, and yeah. Well, I just missed the operational side of things. But, but listen, um, let's talk about you and your career. So tell us, when, when did you join the police? Oh, I, I was a cadet. You were a boy soldier. The, the, did you call them gadgets in the Westmids? Um, they did, yeah. They did call you a gadget. Um, there was, um, I think we were, t we were always told that it was um, police officers were the most important thing and then it was horses and then dogs and then cadets. <laughs> and gadgets at the end. And, and uh, <laughs> we, we were treated, uh, well we were children. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, So how old were you then? I was sixteen. Sixteen, bloody hell. But but um, th there's a couple of things you get get from operating in in adversity because that's what it was. It was yeah, you know, it was a very very physical um, competitive type of environment. But what you get out of that is is uh, a sense of discipline and self worth that you take with you. Yeah, through service. Yeah, but you also get mates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and it, I, I literally half an hour ago talking to a lad who I was a cadet with when we were sixteen. I'm mean, mm. now fifty five and fifty six, mm. and I'm seeing him on Thursday. You've got you end up with mates for life. Yeah, and I know. Quite a few it. of my mates were gadgets, and um, yeah, and they said exactly the same. Um, there was a bit of a funny kind of um, them and us kind of mentality. When you were at training school with the cadets, ex-cadets, they sort of, yeah, they kind of saw themselves as being a little bit sort of superior and looked down their noses a little bit at the people who had just joined. Did you find that? Well, well, we were we were particularly warned about that because I think before those that went before us, there was a bit of that kind of I was a cadet type nonsense. Mm. So when I went to Wrighton, you were kind of told, you know, mm. Kira down and and. Um, let you work, do the talking, not not yeah, the mouth. Yeah, and and it, I know you. Did you have class leaders? Yeah, yeah. You know where they, they yeah. we used to call them drill pigs. Right. Where they'd like call out the commands and march yeah, you around. Yeah, yeah. They were usually ex military. They used to work, exactly, and they and they would never ever choose an ex cadet for mm. for that reason because they didn't yeah. want to see them above themselves. Mm. But so, yeah, so I, and and then I joined the old Bill regulars in in nineteen eighty four. Right. Uh, when I went to. So eighty four. That's the year of the Hansworth riots, wasn't it? Yeah, there was there was the Hansworth riots, and there was also the um, the miners' strike. Right. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. And um, w one of the things I remember most was when when you joined and and you go through training school, you then get a, attached to somebody who who um, teaches you how to do the job, don't you? Chief constable. And my uh, my tutor went by the name of uh, Zippy. I'm, I'm sure you know. Zippy Bustop. Yeah, top lad. Mm -hmm. Really good lad. But what I do remember is you were with them for a certain amount of time, and uh, they kept kept getting pulled away onto the minor strike. Yeah. So you were it was very disjointed. You you training. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So it was a bit before my time because I joined in nineteen eighty nine. So a lot of the a lot of the people I worked with in the early days, you know, they would talk about the minor strike, but it was obviously, um, you know, something I'd never actually experienced. So so where did you get posted to first of all? I went to Fletcherstead Highway in Coventry. Right, okay. Um, so we were covering that side of the city, the west side of the city. Mm. And it, I, I, it's where you kind of grow up as a, as a person as well as a cop, mm. when you first posted. Yeah. And um, you're absolutely reliant on the people around you. You know, and I, I remember walking, you walk into the canteen and you'd see somebody who was 25 years old and got six years service and you were totally in awe of yeah. how brilliant they were. <laughs> And um, the truth is, they probably didn't know any more than you, did they? They just, <laughs> no. just pretended yeah. that they did. Oh, they just bullshitted better. Yeah, 
Yeah, I remember, so so we had a bit of that, and then I, re I remember the first you kind of first move off your first team was mm. like the biggest thing that had ever happened to you. Yeah. So you know you're going off the shift. Yeah. And uh, in my case, I went onto a little vehicle crime team. Yeah. And um, it it was a massive kind of moment for me to mm. be coming off off a team that I'd relied totally on. Mm. And uh, but then you know after that it becomes a bit like water off a duck's back, doesn't it? So what are your memories of? of policing in, in those days in terms of bearing in mind so it's probably worth just pointing out you probably know already but I've written a book which is going to be published later on this year where I talk about how the police changed over the 30 years that I was in it um, um, and it's sort of like a memoir of the difference I suppose so on one hand I tell the story of, of my career but I also sort of talk about how things changed and I also talk about how in my view the police have come to be in a position where I think they're in a lot of trouble, a lot of difficulties for all sorts of reasons to do with politics and finance and culture and all sorts of things. So, so what are your memories of policing in those days? I, I, I think the biggest thing is we had time. Mm. Um, so, so you weren't always going from one job to another. Mm. Um, and, and you, know, you were busy enough. Um, the, there wasn't really much you can say about money there was there was very little overtime mm -hmm. i remember that but but certainly when i joined the vehicle team and the, the people i worked with on that team were just they were brilliant mm -hmm. but we had time so yeah. you had time to research you know where your hotspot obviously they've got intelligence officers doing this now but you work out where your hotspot but you had time to go and yeah. actually patrol yeah you know we, albeit ours was in plain clothes but we you know mm -hmm. and it was before um a ripper and all that you can mm. set your own obs up mm. um, but we had time to do stuff and mm. and um, I think the other thing is everybody stuck by each other mm. um, and I'm not saying that's a good thing yeah but they did yeah um, so I think those are probably the the, the main things I remember and, and and certainly as a young PC I don't remember any kind of political interference or no. you know uh, necessity to do something no. because of what a councillor wanted, or yeah. um, you know, obviously there was no such things as PCCs, mm. but but you know whether whether that was felt further up the chain at that point, I don't know. And yeah. I, but we're, I, we were never really bothered either, were we? Yeah, no. Well, actually, the word performance wasn't even in the policing lexicon, was it? You know. Well, well, well I don't know because because um, everybody knew how many prisoners you had. Yeah, I suppose those basic things like how many prisoners or bodies, as we'd call them, you'd had. Um, you know, that's. Kind of like a, but that's probably like a, a badge of pride as much as anything else, wasn't it? But I don't suppose, um, certainly I don't recall in the sort of late eighties, early nineties, being anyone ever saying to me, "You haven't done enough of these or this week or month or anything like that." Maybe when you're a probationer, they'd think, "Right, have you done enough process?" So for anybody listening who doesn't know what that means, that's traffic process, which is like sticking people on for you know, uh, dodgy exhausts or parking on, you know, approach to pedestrian crossings and all that do, kind do of you, stuff. Do you know what, when uh, we, we used to have to fill in these books, they were yellow books, and um, it was such a nonsense. It was such a way of alienating ourselves from everybody. But like you said, we, you know, when we were told, you know, mm. you need to do X amount of these and, and whatnot. Mm. And, and I remember when I, when I was first a sergeant, 
you'd, you'd some PC had, or in our case it was us, but then a, a, subsequently I was a sergeant. One of the PCs would spend forty-five minutes probably mm. writing up a, a no seatbelt mm. that went through their own sergeants who who put a recommendation on that the person should see receive a warning letter. <laughs> that then went to the inspector who read it and put a recommendation on that he agreed with the sergeant or she agreed with the sergeant. That then went into a central admin unit where it was read by another supervisor mm. who said, yes, I agree. So we've got three three waves of supervision. Yeah, you know, for such a trivial... For, for some person who should have been told, would you mind putting your seatbelt seat yeah. on? Because, yeah, yeah. you know, um, but, but we... But we were doing it, I think, because we were told to and, and to show that we were doing stuff. I think, I think the only positive, my memories of those days, the only positive thing about that sort of traffic process, as we called it, was that in a weird sort of way, I don't take this wrong way, it kind of blooded you as a young, that's not a terrible word to use, but what I meant by that was it kind of uh, was your first introduction to confrontation yeah, and difficult having difficult interactions with the public and until that time when you come straight out of the box from training school you know you've never had to do that before but when you stop some stroppy builder in a van that's belching out black smoke and he's got no tax and and he's got three bald tires and then you have to report him for various vehicle defects and he has a massive attitude failure and then you end up rolling around on the floor with him and his mates. Um, it's not not a bad experience for a young copper, is it? I don't disagree with that. I, I just think that that we did a lot of nonsense as well. Yeah, I agree. That, that didn't need doing. And, you know, uh, if you were telling me to target my vehicle checks in a certain part of the city that was a hotspot for vehicle crime or burglary or drug dealing, um, then then that's that's fine. Uh, I, I don't necessarily think patrolling up and down the A45 yeah, no, looking for Mrs Miggins who's forgotten to put a seatbelt on or a indicator lens has stopped working is, you know, or was particularly good use of our time. No, definitely not. So anyway, your career then, um, how long did you spend as a constable? Well, I, 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 I think seven or eight years and oh, I, went, okay. I, I was a DC as well in that time. I went on the infamous CID course at... Uh, right. Taiho, which um, people used to save the Olympic Olympic drinking yeah, championships. Yeah, well, 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 I used to come home on Friday night, go to bed, and wake <laughs> up on Sunday evening to go back to work to Taiho. It was dreadful, and and in between uh, we did some. We actually, I think they set the exams. The exams were quite hard. They were set from the sergeants and the inspectors' uh, syllabus. So. Mm. But, I, you know, I, I, I was lucky enough, I'd already passed the inspector's exam when I went there. Did you? So I kind of stood it up to a certain level, so I didn't right. find it particularly difficult. Um, but yeah, so I was, and then, and as I just said at the start, I, I got myself into an environment which I didn't particularly enjoy, mm. which we've all probably, most of us have done. Mm. And uh, unlike you, who had the uh, balls to say, this isn't for me. I thought I'd try and get promoted, <laughs> <laughs> and and I don't forget I, I I put my I put this form in to try and get promoted, and it went through the superintendent. Um, if we're allowed to name names, it yeah, got called Mick Bromwich. Yeah, uh, it was a very stern man, mm. and um, he also he also didn't even know what I was really. <laughs> and I put this form in, and uh, the very next day, I was in the backyard at Little Park Street Police Station where all the cars were kept. 
and uh, and my mate was about to get into his car, so I flipped all the uh, all the windscreen wipers up on it. Mm-hmm. You see, uh, just messing about and basically damaging his car. Mm-hmm. And I looked up, and Mick, Mick Bromwich was staring down at me, <laughs> looking, <laughs> you know, in a disapproving manner. And get back to get to the back of the queue. Well, it, it was almost like that. And then and then the following weekend, I was on lates on a Sunday, and of course there's no gaffers around on Sunday, is it? Mm-hmm. And I was sat in the CRD office, and. Um, We'd got a bottle of wine, so we got a bottle of wine, a couple of us, mm. and I'd got my feet on the table. Bromwich walked in. Complete <laughs> second thing. It's like two, <laughs> two things in three days. And he, he, he wrote me up um, saying I, I recommend, and he'd obviously discussed it with the DI, who I didn't particularly like or rate, uh, and it said, um, you know, suitable for promotion. Uh, but if he wants to come back into the CRD, he'll need to do more time as a DC. Mm. Which, which, when you look back, back on that now, is such an antiquated and ridiculous thing to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's how it was, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. If definitely. you hadn't been in the CRD for 10 years, you yeah, couldn't yeah, be a sergeant yeah. almost. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, so anyway, I, got, I managed, somehow managed to get through the, the assessment process. Yeah. Literally by the skin of my teeth. Because it was graded one to six. I think one was brilliant. And I think you had to get a three overall. Mm. And... In one of the disciplines, I got a five, which is like a proper <laughs> fail. But I managed to just, just overall, just scrape through. And, and uh, anyway, I got promoted to, to Bromford Lane as a sergeant. Bromford Lane. So for people who don't understand what that is, that's kind of north of the city centre, isn't it, in Birmingham? Yeah, it, it's about three miles from the city centre, northeast Birmingham. Um, and I'll tell you, what, I had the time in my life. Did you? Oh, God, I loved it. Absolutely. So did you have a team? How did it work? Did you have a, was it a response team or how did it work? Yeah, I, I was uh, I was on a response team, um, and I, I think I did that for about three or four years. And, right. and uh, all all the uh, all the evil characters in my policing life seemed to be senior detective officers. <laughs> and, and there was this uh, the DCI. Um, he was, I, I mean, I was just a prick. Really. That's the only way you could describe yeah, it. Yeah. And plenty of them around. And he he um he he'd have you up on anything for no reason at all. And and again, I was caught slouching in the custody office one day. And and then he came in uh, one day, and they'd obviously uh, they'd got an LIO sergeant's position, mm. and they'd obviously put put me in it. Mm. And he came in, and he said, "Oh, we've got this fantastic opportunity, and da di da, it's going to be this, it's going to be that." And we mm. basically, what you'd be the LIO sergeant. And yeah. I went, "No thanks." Literally like that. And he went, what do you mean, no, thanks? I said, I don't want to do it. Which is... Career suicide. Yeah. And he said, well, you, you know, you'll never get in the CRD with an attitude like that. I said, that's fine. Don't, you know, that's, if I don't get the CRD, that's fine. I don't care. Mm. And, um, and he, he stomped off. I, I, he, he, I can't remember writing that. But, but uh, it was the right decision for me not to do it. Because yeah. I ended up within, I think within a... A very short space of time, I managed to get on some like pretend special course. Special course being like a mm, yeah, for particularly promotion. yeah accelerated promotion people, mm. and um, I uh, I'd managed to get on something like that. It was the the, the forces own scheme of that. Yeah, it yeah. didn't really come to anything, but and and within a couple of years of that, I'm, I'd managed to make it to to uh, to to be an inspector. Right. Okay. Good. Well, I'm conscious of um, there's quite a lot of ranks to get through, and I'm conscious of time. And there's a lot of other stuff I want to talk about. So, so anyway, you became an inspector. 
um, obviously then Chief Inspector, and then our paths crossed. I think you were a newly promoted superintendent whenever you came to Coventry, isn't that right? I was, yeah. I, was, I think I was 39 when I was a superintendent. Came... So you were very young for a superintendent. Yeah, I suppose right? I was at the time. Didn't feel like it particularly. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, came to to the Fletch where uh, Chris Stuffield was the boss. That's right, yeah. So um, I'm going to um, sort of just kind of reminisce about my initial kind of um, thoughts about you. Because I saw... Like, like we all do, I think. Well, I think we all change, don't we, as we go through our yeah. careers um, massively. And certainly certainly I did, and I know you definitely did, because the Clive Burgess that I remember from those days was quite an intimidating character. Very, very driven, um, very um, uncompromising. Um, you definitely didn't suffer fools gladly. Um, and um, But... But absolutely crystal clear about what you expected from people, and I know that, you know that I think you were sort of a bit sort of marmite, weren't you? Probably in those days. I mean, what would, does that sound fair? Well, uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I mean, we all uh, mature and mellow, don't we? Mm. And um, I think uh, I, I'd worked at Stetchford as a DCI under the in the Tony Blair years, if you like, mm. where lots of money came into policing, mm-hmm. but but was came in with a with a condition, didn't it? Street strike, yeah. vehicle strike, whatever. You know, yeah, yeah, whatever yeah, 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 so they give you all this money, but we want this back from you. And we'll see some results. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So so I'd been through all that, and it, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I was, but but then you know you do mature over the years, don't you? Yeah, definitely. Um, um, so I, so I remember. So I'm just checking. Just faffing with my laptop. It's gone to sleep. I just want to make sure it's still. Recording. Uh, yeah, so I, so I can remember you chairing in those days. Um, we had the morning tasking meetings that were very, very, um, quite brutal, really, in many ways. So this is the this is right in the heart of the performance culture, and I just want to sort of come on and talk about that in a minute. But that was the time when, you know, the Blair regime, as you rightly point out, had pumped a lot of money into policing. And that came with a shitload of performance indicators, didn't it? Yeah, it did, yeah. Uh, and they wanted to measure absolutely, if it wasn't screwed down, it got measured, didn't it? Um, and um, there was lots and lots of, I know, I won't, I won't tell you what I think because I'm more interested in what you think. Um, what, what, are your, what are your thoughts about that period in policing, you know, in terms of what, what do you think was good? What do you think was bad? Um, what are your general reflections on the on that period? I, th- I think the good thing was that that um, as you know, senior officers in bird corners, you you actually you were accountable. Mm. And if you remember when um, Paul Scott Lee came in as the chief constable, mm. he you know there, there was no argument about what was expected. You know, you said I was very direct. Mm. Well, well, that's what he was. Mm. He didn't. He didn't leave you to wonder mm. what he wanted you to do with your area. Mm-hmm. He told you, and and um, so I think you were you were definitely accountable. And uh, if you were, if you were good, you could shine. the The downside of all this is it is it had the potential, and it indeed did, 
Um, and I'll give you an example, drive um, perverse activity. Mm. So um, I remember being in one area and being told uh, that the detection target was whatever it was, 25%, mm. and we were running below that. Mm. And it was, you need to get detections. Mm. You've got to get detections. Mm. Okay, we'll try and get some detections. Uh, yeah, I don't care how you do it, I don't care mm. what you get, you mm. know. And I, and I remember um, sending staff into an area where there was high drug usage. Mm. And it's just cannabis. To just yeah. go and get cannabis cautions, mm. right? And, and you could actually see it on the charts mm. where, you know, the end of the year performance was March. And that will, be, that will have been happening on every single OCU, oh, wouldn't it? Was. So, so January, February, March, you could see the drugs offences on our area spiked up massively. Mm. But so did detections. Yeah. And we came in with 25.1% detection rate, tick, tick, very good, yeah. aren't you a brilliant commander? But meanwhile, you've pissed off everyone between the ages of 14 well, and Well, not only that, you've wasted your time, <laughs> it's what yeah. you've done, isn't it? Because, yeah. because there's burglars, robbers, people targeting children, blah, 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 yeah. going on, yeah. and we're fanning around yeah. with, with some young kid who's done nothing wrong other than have some drawer in his pocket, yeah. which actually, if you picked 100 kids yeah. it, it, within 100 metres of a university, you could yeah. probably find that it as well. Yeah. 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 And then the next year... Uh, we stopped doing it, obviously, because yeah. we we then got a, a target to reduce crime. Yeah. And blah, so we stopped doing it. Yeah. And then and then I remember the um, the strategic assessment came out saying that we'd solved the drug problem in in the area. Well, really? we hadn't solved it. We just stopped <laughs> locking people up, and it was just the whole thing was just a bloody uh, sham, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and and so I think that was the downside of. And I can certainly remember other ridiculous things like um you know if if your if your monthly uh, burglary um figures were or or theft from motor vehicle figures were were looking you know crap um or or say because it was because it was it was reducing crime and detecting crime wasn't yeah, it yeah. so in terms of your if your crime reduction figure wasn't looking too good then you know people were literally trying to argue the toss with victims of crime and trying to argue that they hadn't actually had their house broken into. It had been a, you know, a, a sort of a pigeon flying into the mm. patio windows or some sort of ridiculous idea like that, or a stone chip coming up off the road had damaged the wing mirror or whatever. You know what I mean? Is this kind of stuff? So, so yeah. So, so I think we're probably all in agreement. Anyone who worked in policing during that period of time. I think we're all in agreement that whilst on one hand it drove accountability, improved accountability and um, created a, uh, a performance culture, but it also created a lot of undesirable consequences. Yeah, it did. It? Yeah, it did. But, but now, you know, some of the work I've done subsequently, you see that um, any, you talk about, you know, the, somebody flew, you know, pigeon flew into the window sort of thing. Um, anybody who reports anything, it gets recorded now. Yeah. So, so indeed, that has got its own issues as well. Of course it does, yeah. Um, yeah. A, a friend of mine, the lad I was in the cadets with, said he was taking calls the other night, and, and a woman rang up and said, um, uh, Boris Johnson's just come around my house four in the morning. Uh, he's been effing and blinding at me. Uh, called me, uh, you know, this, that and the other, and I want to report it. Yeah. And he said to her, uh, Madam, is, you know, is your husband there? And she said, yes. And um, 
he's going to speak to him. And, and of course, the husband comes on and says, like, I'm sorry, she's got dementia. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and he said, do you, know, do, you, do you need referral to social services? She said, yeah, no. And, and so he put it in, um, he wrote it off. Yeah, yeah. And the sergeant said, you've got to cry it. Oh, yeah. Well, or, or for that matter, what tends to happen is that somebody starts seeing vulnerability in, they see vulnerability absolutely everywhere. So, um, so, so yeah, you get this bizarre home office incident recording rule that says that, you know, you have to eliminate any possibility of a crime taking place before you can not record it. So that, the only way you're going to do that is by sending a physical resource round to the address and surprise, surprise, there's no one at home. Um, so they get sent round again and again and again. So there's a massive waste of time, effort and energy put into trying to resolve something that didn't happen 20 years ago would have just been resolved with words of advice on the phone, yeah. wouldn't it? Yeah. So I think, I think it's gone, uh, rightly gone the other way where people do record far more than they ever did uh, but there's, there seems to be an awful lot of nonsense that sits behind that yeah because I can remember when I was at Stetchford so fast forward to when you were a chief superintendent yeah. and I was one of your inspectors and we'll talk about that in a minute because that's funny we were reminiscing about the Heartbreak Hotel weren't we um, which <laughs> the whole bloody inspector team and you at the same time was going through messy divorces and separations and it was like it was like whose turn is it to cry today you know? yeah um so the um, when we're at Stetchford, you're the chief superintendent by this stage. I'm I'm a uniform inspector, one of your uniform inspectors, and and then I was later I was at one of your DIs. Um, yeah, there was a um, visit, wasn't there? From do you remember Ronnie Flanagan? Yeah, uh, do you know I, 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 Ronnie Flanagan was was he the chief HMI at the time? He was good as gold. Yeah, because he he was given a piece of work to do. So he's the ex for anybody listening, doesn't he? He's the ex. Chief Constable of what was the RUC Royal Oyster Constabulary. He then uh, was the Chief Inspector of Constabulary and a thoroughly, thoroughly good guy. He couldn't hope to meet a nicer bloke. Um, and he was given a piece of work by, I think, Gordon Brown's government, possibly oh, by that yeah. stage, um, to, to look at police bureaucracy and to try and see if we could improve things because everybody realised it was just completely out of control. And so he came to Stetchford. And I had the shit inspector's job, didn't I? Thanks, no, that was Clive. The, that was the primary role, mate. I, I was looking for my best officer. <laughs> Thanks, Clive. Um, so you gave me the shit inspector's job, which was, which was the ops centre inspector. But I've got to say, to be fair, I learned so much from doing that job. Oh my I thought God. you were going to say you, you learned so much from me. It's clearly got all wrong. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a minute. But um, yeah, no, I learned so much from doing that job. But he came along that one day and he sat down with me and I, I knew he was coming. So I prepared this great big folder of examples of terrible wasted effort. The stuff, the stuff that we got sent to that nobody actually cared about. But we had to keep on going back again and again and again um, because the Home Office we couldn't let us know crime it because we hadn't had it um, negated or whatever. But... And he sat there shaking his head and just said, oh, God, this is terrible, this is terrible. Um, he says, but if it makes you feel any better in every single place I've been to in the whole of the UK, I'm seeing exactly the same thing. And I was thinking, oh, well, you know, they've asked him to do this piece of work. He's, he's going to go back and report something to someone and hopefully things will get better. But of course they didn't. I don't think they ever did. I mean, I don't know. Did, do you think they ever got any better? I, I think... Um 
it's easy to say it, but I think policing's just gotten more and more complex, hmm. and and um, more and more risk averse, hmm. uh, more and more checking and and uh, doubling back. So and why do you think that is? Oh, God knows, mate. I mean, I I, I think the fact that uh, you've you mentioned vulnerability, I think at least twice. Um, there is there is obviously so much vulnerability in, in the people that police deal with mm. but there always was mm. but I don't think we ever recognised it so so the kid that was um, kicking off in the block and going up, up the wall in mm. the cell block when he'd been locked up for shoplifting mm. when he should have been at school mm. um, when we were kids was just you know a pain in the arse kid mm. Mm. the truth is he was or she was probably ADHD, mm. may have had autism, yeah, blah blah blah, and and we never recognised any of that, did we? Yeah, no, no, we didn't. I suppose my counter to that is so, so, so don't to I suppose caveat caveat everything I'm just about to say with having been a DI in a public protection unit. There's no one who's more tuned into vulnerability, serious vulnerability than me, and I've seen more of it than I. There's probably more so more than my fair share of it in in that time when I was a, when I was doing the, the PPU job. But I suppose my, my concern, I suppose, is that we seem to be now the agency of first and last choice. Well, everything else has been withdrawn now, hasn't it? You know, and, and um, you know, I, I remember the, the chief actually saying, you know, what do the council do other than empty the bins? Hmm. And, and let's be honest, the resources and, and the services that have, have just disappeared... And, mm. and you know what's open twenty four hours a day, mm. the police. Mm. You know, and and some emergency. We ever try ringing the emergency duty team. How difficult was that to get oh, yeah. through to out of hours? I mean, and we had some brilliant responses from them when mm. I was working in in the police. But th- there's only there's only really us yeah. that, that's open, and the ambulance. And mm. I bet you the ambulance get just as much crap as we do in that respect. You yeah. know, pull from pillar to post. You know, and they're the other agency of rush resort because they end up taking people to hospital, don't but they? I think, I think what goes with that, and I, and I get it, I get that you know, we're a 24-7, seven-day-a-week service, um, but the problem, of course, is that now when anything goes wrong, we're the first, it seems like we're the first, say we, I'm talking as if I'm still in the police, aren't I? Well, I'm not, um, but you know what I mean. Um, the police are the first people to be blamed when things go wrong, it seems to me. Would you... What are your thoughts on that? I, I think some of the some of the work I've done since I've left the police um, has shown me that quite often, um, however well-meaning we we the police are, mm. uh, they get an awful lot of stuff wrong. Mm. Whether that's through lack of experience, overwhelmed with work, or whatever. But but when it comes down to because these so things, give, us, give us an example. What type of things are you thinking about? Uh, so, people in mental health crisis at night, mm. um, you know, how often does that end up rolling around in the dirt with a cop? Quite often, yeah. I would say. Yeah, yeah. Is, is that the well, way? particularly when people then die, you know, you, well, you end up having a medical emergency, yeah. get called, we get called to someone who's having a mental health crisis, um, who's potentially harming themselves or harming other people and, and they end up getting restrained and sometimes dying, don't mm. they? And, and and where I have a bit of a problem with it, Ian, is is uh, is when you sit and talk to cops who moan about this, mm. 
And and my response to that is, well, what well, what is your job then? Mm. Yeah, because because actually, if you thought your job was was coming to work to arrest burglars, mm. you're doing the wrong job because it isn't anymore. Mm. Yeah, when you and I joined, we joined to chase people, didn't we? Mm. Let's be honest, we joined to chase people, <laughs> fight with people, and lock people up. That's why we joined. That's what you joined the police for in the eighties. But you don't join the police for that now. Mm. So when they sit there and go, oh, it's a disgrace. We have to do this, 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 and this. Well, well actually, what, what is it you paid for? Actually, you are paid to do that. Mm. And uh, so I do struggle with it a bit, but they are. It's very. The work I do now is reviewing what people help, what other people are. It's the easiest thing in the world to find fault. Yeah. So with just other just on work. that one. So since you left the police, you have been doing quite a lot of work for the inspectors of Castellari, haven't you? Yeah, I haven't worked for them for a couple of years, but yeah, I've, I've done some work with them. And and what you see. It, 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 uh, do you remember? Do you remember? It's called the Shudder Squad, didn't they? The what? Do you remember the Shudder Squad? No. It's called about the Shudder Squad, and it's the people that come in at nine o'clock in the morning when you've been. Um, oh, and right, they go, yeah. oh, you should have done this and you should have like done that. Like the nine o'clock jury. Yeah, should have done this and you should have done that. Oh right, okay. That's why they called. They came. You know, as the Shudder Squad. You see, because right, yeah. at nine o'clock in the morning over a bacon sandwich, it's dead easy to pick apart what yeah. you haven't taken this statement and you didn't see that witness. Yeah. Well, actually, do you know they were high on drugs? Yeah. Uh, they were asleep and somebody else you know, wouldn't answer the phone or didn't speak English. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, yeah. at nine o'clock in the morning, we can all go mad about that, can't we? Yeah. As indeed we did. Yeah, you yeah, know. yeah. So well, I, the IOPC seemed to be very good at that as well, yeah. didn't they? You know? Yeah, so, so it, it just isn't the same job that you joined mm. and that I joined. Mm. It, it's more, it, it is more um, vulnerability-based and it is more... Um, Dealing with the with 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 social evil, isn't it, and and difficulty and distress. Yeah. So I I don't fundamentally disagree with what you just said there. I broadly agree with it, but I suppose my concern is that we seem to, as an organisation, have stepped in into a vacuum that has been created by the withdrawal of funding for a lot of other agencies who should be, in an ideal world, picking up a lot of that stuff. Whereas um, my, my fear is that there's a load of crime taking place. And I appreciate the, the nature of crime has changed, hasn't it? Um, there's a lot more online crime. There's a lot more hidden crime. Um, but the traditional crime types haven't gone away. People are still getting their cars, getting dragged out of their cars at gunpoint, at traffic lights. They're still finding themselves, um, you know, shot and stabbed. Um, and and there's a load of new and in inverted commas crime types that are facilitated by technology. Um, my my slight fear, I suppose, is that because we're getting dragged into so much stuff that's not traditional police work, that police officers are going to lack a strong sense of mission. I suppose, for want of a better word, what is actually the the mission for policing? I think that I think the mission the mission has changed because I, I think the mission now is protecting vulnerable people, isn't it? Far more than we ever knew, you know, when we were working. Mm. Um, when I was PCDC sergeant, the mission was to lock up criminals. I don't think it, I don't think it is, I don't think it works like that. But I think that's a difficult argument to sustain when you've got a seven percent. Um, conversion rate of total recorded crime to criminal justice outcome. Now, mm. I think the public are not 
I don't know what the public think because I, I, I haven't gone out and spoken to everybody, but um, I suspect that if you said to your average man or woman in the street, do you think it's acceptable that the police only resolve and bring to court approximately 7% of total recorded crime? I suspect the answer to that would be no, I don't. So, so I'm not sure how you square that circle of managing all this tsunami of vulnerability whilst at the same time being able to give justice to members of the public who find themselves victims of crime. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree with that. The, the, the caveat I'd put on that is if you wound the clock, clock back um, to when, the, let's say, the detection rate was, was higher than that, and, and I remember it being 18 19%, mm. um, how much of that was actually relevant crime detections? Mm. How much of that was write-offs? Taken cases taken into consideration at court, mm. cautions for cannabis mm. that didn't mean anything. Mm. You know, there, there would have been some. No, I'm not saying it was all that. There yeah. would have been some of it would have been that. And and the other thing is, if you say to a member of the public, um, "What what do you want mm. from the police?" Most people, I think, would say, "I would want them to respond when I need them." Mm. That's hot, completely different from solving your crime. Right. That's what I think. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. I might be wrong, but um, you know, I think I, I think I would agree with that. If I need the police, there's only a few things that I kind of want. I suppose I I want them to kind of take an interest, a genuine interest, in what and the reason why I'm contacting them. I want them to try and kind of help me as much as they reasonably can, and I want them to behave professionally yeah. when they do all of that. I think where where I, give, I can give you an example where we struggle is, you, you, you know, they clearly have these criteria for deployment. And mm. um, m my partner uh, had an attempted burglary at her house and the police didn't come out. Mm. And um, they, they did eventually come out. But then the blood, there was blood on the fence. Yeah. Um, the fence between the two attached houses, the semi-detached. Yeah. And the scenes of crime, uh, forensics, rang up and said, is, it, does that blood, is there a trail from that to the, to the door? Mm. Well, we don't know because it's grass, mm. but there's blood on the fence. Well, in that case, we're not going to come out then. Mm. Okay. And now my view is, okay, well, whose blood is it then? If it's not the burglars, mm. who, who exactly has cut themselves mm. Mm. on a on a adjoining fence between us and yeah, the next door yeah. neighbours? When, when there's a house burgled, been burgled. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. It's a bit of a coincidence. Now, now, now I'm not saying yeah. that, that, the D, that, that the DNA on that would prove whoever it was did the burglary, but it would prove they were there. Mm. And the very least it would be is bloody good intelligence. Yeah. For, for the police in the area that, yeah. that that person's out and about doing burglaries. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where I struggle. I mean, can, you imagine, can you imagine somebody saying that back in the days when we talked about when performance was king? Yeah. You know I mean? Can you imagine a, a PC or a sergeant coming to morning tasking and saying, well, we decided not to bother getting the blood from outside that burglary because... It was eight feet away from the door. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's literally what it was, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I just think... Okay, so your deployment criteria might say, might say that that's the right... But actually, where's your bloody common sense? Mm. You know, yeah. where's, your, where's your policing knowledge and, yeah. and thought process that says, if you know, the protection of life and property, mm. that's one of the main, you know, responsibilities of the police. Yeah. Nobody else is going to solve the burglary, are they? It's down to the police. Yeah. So, uh, so I think there's, a, there's an element of that as well. 
So um, I just want to, before I forget, because I think it'll be a shame not to, to, to sort of skip over it, just go back to that period of time we were talking about when I was, we were both working at Stetchford, um, just to kind of add a bit of colour and shade to, um, you know, talk about the culture of policing and not anything else. This was a time when so many people um, on our team were going through a complete disaster domestically, wasn't it? Um, and and I think, to be fair to say, um, you were as well, weren't you? I think you, you were going through a, a, a separation and divorce. And um, there was at least, I think there was at least four inspectors on the inspector team who were simultaneously, and we called it Heartbreak Hotel for a while, didn't we? Yeah, and, and um, I, I, I mean, look, the first thing I, w- I, w- I would say about that is... I think we had a really strong team. We did. Of inspectors. Yeah, definitely. And and had I been given the opportunity to handpick them, mm. they wouldn't have looked much different yeah. to, to what they were. Um, so, so that, and, and, I, and I also think it was, they were cohesive mm. overall. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I don't think the job suffered. No. Every, every team has its squabbles and all that yeah, sort of yeah. stuff. But, that, but it was a cohesive team and a, mm. a, a, I think a high performing team. But yeah, and, and this is this bit about um, stress mm. and mental health and mm. depression and all that. And you can mask it however you like mm. by, um, in, in, in our case, most of us just go out and get absolutely slaughtered mm. to the point where you couldn't actually see. Mm. <laughs> um, as By way of debriefing yeah. uh, our woes, if you like. Yeah. But, but I think it does sharply bring into perspective that it doesn't matter what, rank, role, position you've got, whether it's in the police or anywhere else, there's a high percentage of people who have um, ha- have a lot of personal issues to deal with. Oh, definitely, yeah. And the, the crazy thing is, mate, was during that period, and can I just say, you know, for the record, you were amazing during that whole period. I'm, and I'm, I'm not just blow, saying that to blow smoke up your arse, you were. Uh, you were a fantastic boss, and um, you really looked after the team, you know, and you were very good at the sort of welfare side of things and you were genuinely you were genuinely interested, genuinely cared about what was going on in people's lives. Because I, I mean speaking for myself, I was going through a complete nightmare. I mean I was running a child abuse investigation team as a DI at the time. So so whilst I was going through all of this stuff of of a of a really horrible, messy separation and divorce, um, I was also going out to deal with dead kids. Yeah. You know what I mean? And um and getting up in the middle of the night to go out and deal with dead kids. And uh, and I didn't have a single day off work during that whole period. I just kind of, you just kind of battle through it. But actually, when you look back on those days, you just think, what an idiot. What an idiot. You know, what on earth was I thinking? And I can remember days. There was days when I used to come into my office um, in, in the public protection unit and, and, and close the door. And what the team outside must have thought, I have no <laughs> idea. Because we would simultaneously be taking it in turns to, we'd be one minute we'd be roaring with laughter, wouldn't we? Yeah. And then the next twenty minutes later we'd be crying. Yeah. We'd be sat there fucking blubbing like kids, you know, like babies. And and what the team outside must have thought, I, I don't know. But I just thought that was such a brilliant um, thing for a chief superintendent to do, you know, with staff, you know. And I was, it was just, it was, but it was a crazy, it was a crazy time. And I said when I came in, I said, I can't remember the last time. Well, no, the last, the last time I saw you, the last time I was in your house, I shot myself. 
because yeah. I was so pissed and and I was going through this terrible terrible time and and I had bad guts and I ended up shitting myself. Yeah. So um, <laughs> uh, we, we we had another one as um one of one of the DIs uh, Matt who you'll remember. He rang me up one Sunday afternoon, and uh, he said, I've, 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 left, I've left my wife. <laughs> and I said, oh, Christ, Matt. I said, you better come round. <laughs> so he came round my house, and he'd been to see her brother, who had given him, well, it's about time you fucked off. She's right behind there. <laughs> really helpful, you know. And I remember um, taking him out, and we had a really good night out. And the next day, he was back with her. But it's... Um, yeah, it was it was a, a receptacle for distressed inspectors. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fun. I mean, it's great that we can sit and laugh about it now because I tell you what, there wasn't much to laugh about then. But but I remember those days in Stetchford as well. It was Stetchford was a busy old place, wasn't it? Oh man! Oh my God! I mean, it was like I mean, statistically, and I did. I remember doing the research on this. The, I did the maths on this before Ronnie Flanagan came, and I and I compared. It was one of the. I think it's in the top three busiest policing areas in, in the UK. Um, it had ridiculous demand, so much serious crime. Still does, you know. A lot of threat as well there around the yeah. uh, counter-terrorism stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. A lot of community cohesion stuff going on in that area. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was, um, it, it was years back, which is why it was, well, first of all, that sort of um, uh, environment holds people together, because mm-hmm. you have to. You know, if you're yeah. not going to work as a team, uh, you're knackered when it's as busy as that. Yeah, yeah. But it's also when you have got stuff uh, going on personally, mm. when, when you walk into work and that stuff comes at you in waves, which yeah. it would have done for every rank yeah. you know, at that station, oh, like, yeah. from PC up, yeah. um, it, it actually works as a, it does distract you. Yeah, yeah. No, I remember very well, I, learned, I was a newly promoted inspector when I came to Stetchford and and uh, whilst I was pretty experimental, I was quite long in service, wasn't I, by that stage? Because I, I was a late developer. I mean, I was a DC, a PC and a DC until I had 14 years service. So I was, I was quite a late developer, really. So I had nearly 20 years service by that stage. But, but I was a newly promoted inspector. And, uh, oh, my God, I learned so much, so much, so quickly. And, and the team of inspectors were, were awesome. It was, a, it was a great team. It was a great buzz, wasn't it? But um, <coughs> just moving on to a slightly different subject, austerity. So... Um, what, what year did you actually retire from policing? Uh, 2014. 14. The austerity was in and had been in for a while. Yeah, so so, uh, <coughs> so you probably, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you probably missed out on the being in the job at the time when it really, really began to bite. And I'm thinking it probably began to really bite by the time we've hit sort of 2016, 17, 18, really, that's when the pain really started to come on, I think, for policing. But then having said that, you were working for HMIC, so you were probably well aware of all of those issues. Yeah, so, we, were, we, were, um, we were in police forces, I was in police forces every, virtually every week, um, and looking at, at what, what, they were, what, what they were doing. And, um, so what's your thoughts on, what, what are your thoughts on the whole, I'm not asking you to, to sort of like, you know, throw Theresa May under the bus, but, you know, what are your thoughts on that whole period of policing history? Because cause I, my, you know, as I say in my book, I think it may take a generation to recover 
from that. I don't know if that's putting it too strongly. I think I, I think it's just going to. Um, I don't think it will recover to the to where it was. I think it's changed forever. Because of austerity or because of the nature of the job. I think both. Right. I, I think I think I think this whole the whole recognition of vulnerability mm. has changed policing's role. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. And you would have been to domestics where you told the victim, who was probably a female, to sort her life out and leave him if he's an arsehole type stuff. Mm. Uh, and if you did that now, you'd get sacked. Yeah. But, and rightly so. So that, that the whole thing has changed. The, the austerity thing, I don't see it again. You look at COVID, mm. the amount of money that's been spent mm. propping up the UK economy with mm. furlough and business loans, etc., Mm. Um, uh, you know, I, we're in more debt now, probably. I, I guess it than, than we have pro rata been since the Second World War, mm. um, which has only just been paid for, by the way. Yeah. Um, and you start to think, well, how how are they ever going to find extra money, please? Mm. Yeah. So, so that the NHS, right? That, that's going to be at the front of the queue when it yeah. comes to dollar now money, isn't it? Yes, it is. But. But that being the case, and I agree with you, that being the case, that means that something fundamentally has to change, I would suggest. Because cause the demand, if you, I mean, I, I follow quite a lot of social media stuff, police social media sites, some of which are public and some of which, like Twitter, and the, but some of which are closed groups, but I'm a member, you know, a number of closed groups and stuff. And so I read, I read a lot of this stuff that's coming out in all its kind of, Frustration and fury. I think that's this just general general sense of, and then and then you get some bless them some bright young probationer who's literally just joined like six months ago. He's still full of optimism and belief in what they're doing, and and it's such a counterbalance to some of the kind of despair being expressed by people who've been in the job a long time. So I just feel like there's a at the moment, there just feels to be a sense that police officers, I think police officers feel a bit abandoned, not just because of austerity, but I think if you look at the toxic uh, narrative coming from the media, is particularly damaging, I think, to police morale at the moment. Well, I wouldn't disagree with, with that point. Uh, you know, the... This is a, just a personal opinion. The the way to um, to make policing more efficient is, is to remove the boundary. And and um, even the geographical yeah, boundaries. I do, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the forty three yeah. force structure. And, yeah. and I know it won't happen because the government, I don't think, will ever agree to to um, get rid of policing. Do you think they're scared? Do you think they're scared of the power of the police if they were to do? Do you, do you think it suits? Now the conspiracy theorists would say that the 43-4 structure and the introduction of PCCs is a very convenient way of divide and rule, for want of a better word, to keep policing in its place and, and f- so fractured that it can't stick up for itself. Because I don't think that policing has stuck up for itself in any way uh, it, like the way that it should have done. Would you would you see anything in that conspiracy theory? I, I don't think it's that. I, I, I mean, I, I agree with you that, that I'm not sure policing 
has stuck up for itself. I, I um, towards the end of my career, I went on a on a, a um, on the senior command course, mm. and uh, we had the chief HMI in. Can't remember his name actually. He's not he's not chief HMI anymore. And um, I put my hand up because it was austerity, mm. and and virtually to a person, all the chiefs were saying, you know, this is our opportunity to do things better. You, do you remember that when they were going, mm, yeah, yeah. you're more with less and how we can really... Well, they're still saying it. There's a tweet, tweet from the Chief Constable of, of uh, Police Scotland the other day saying, you know, I'm really happy to be sending my 400 officers down to the G7 and I feel entirely confident that the people of Scotland won't suffer in any way by yeah. losing... You know, it's like well, the, the Chief are all saying the same thing. This is, this is an opportunity to redesign a service to do more with less. And I put my hand up in this course and said to, to the ch Chief HMI, when are the when when are the chief constables going to say um, policing is going to suffer as a result of these austerity cuts mm. and the service won't be as good as it is? Mm. Well, fuck me, you'd have thought I was going to try and shoot him. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so a bit of a bit of a fit. Mate, well, he had because he, he he had a bit of a reputation for being a bit sharp, and um, so he he had a pop back at me, kind of. If it wasn't you think, Dennis O'Connor, was yeah, it? it was. So so it was almost like well, if you think like that, you shouldn't be on the course. <laughs> Right. It's like, yeah. Did you have to go and stand in the corner? Well, I, I then got the I then got tugged by the people running the course. <laughs> this is who's this Trotskyite, you know, who, who thinks that policing is going to suffer from cuts? Oh my oh, god! Oh god! Hang on a minute. Oh you know god. how could it? How can if we've got twelve thousand people, it's right, and and, and we've now got to do it with eight? How can it be better? <laughs> right? And and I've been saying this, and and they go, well, you know, you, you're not seeing the bigger picture. And I go, okay, if that's the case, if this is your opportunity to make things better, why the fuck didn't you do it when we'd got 12,000? Yeah, exactly. Why have you left it until we've got eight? And I was like oh, a pariah. Oh, God. Well, for saying it. I, I mean, I'd like to say I'm surprised, Clive, but I'm not surprised in the slightest by what you've just said there. And, I'm, and I've been very, very outspoken about this, this issue, about the deafening silence that came from chief officers during that period. And not, not all of them, to be fair. No, not all of them, no. but most of them. But but then, um, this bit about removing the boundaries, I, I actually don't think it is about keeping the police in place. I, I think it's more about um, political will and wanting local delivery of local service. But, but when you sit there and say there's a force in, in Warwickshire hmm. with, I don't know, 900 officers ridiculous isn't it um, with with the chief constable and the chief command team. And his team right and, and all the support services around it yeah. and I was sitting in central Birmingham at, at Stillhouse Lane mm. with more than that yeah yeah, yeah? yeah. as chief superintendent now it yeah. doesn't mean I'm any better than them because yeah. I'm not but actually it sort of says well and and a shitload more risk yeah yeah well that's the thing the risk the risk because you know let's be honest the risk in central Birmingham mm. In and around shootings almost every day. Um, in and around that area is is fairly significant compared to Kenilworth, Warwick, Leamington, yeah, yeah. Leamington. I'm not saying they're without risk because they're not. It's definitely yeah. risk there. It's not the same. Now, now the, the the big the big for me the big issue is if you lifted those boundaries between West Mids and Warwickshire, hmm. um, you could be more efficient as a as a whole. Yeah. The problem is if you then run. Um, demands, right? What you'd actually do is sucks, pile all the cops into sucks resources away, and it wouldn't it? just be into the West Mids; it would be into Central Birmingham. Yeah. Because because the bit that the, the bit that glows reddest 
mm. for demand mm. in um, in Warwickshire is is a pipsqueak mm. to what is in sitting in the centre of Birmingham. Yeah. So that's the problem. But but you know, poor old Warwickshire, how they manage with a, you know, they'll have an anti-corruption unit of 0.4 of a post or something. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And it's like, well, hang on, why is that not being done across the two areas? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make does any it? sense whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I think for me, that's. It's more that than trying to keep the cop, you know, the, the police in, in their place. But but when you've got a Tory government whose idea it was, because it was, wasn't it, it was Cameron, yeah, yeah. Um, they'll be reluctant to change it, I think. Yeah, oh, no, definitely. And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know, it's, it seems like a, a dreadful mess, but just sort of keeping on that subject, but slightly different. So given that we've, so we've just talked about the impact of austerity, what a complete sort of car crash that was for policing. I don't think anyone with even, even, you know, even the most deluded chief officer six, seven years ago could see what's happened now. Um, so we've now got this Operation Uplift, which is the, 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 the plan to recruit 20,000 20, over three years. But in reality, um, because of natural wastage and large numbers of retirements, they reckon that's more like fifty to 55,000 over three years they're going to need just to kind of maintain the same headcount plus recruit the 20,000 yeah. extra. Um, so uh, I, I was at an interesting Police Foundation online event there recently where they were talking about in three years' time, something like 35 to 40% of some forces all of the frontline officers will have l less than three years, so yep. something like forty percent. Mm. So, what are your thoughts on that? I think um, what we know as response teams have always been staffed by young cops, haven't they? Cops with very little service, mm. um, which is a bit perverse, really, because it's the the broadest kind of um, skill base, isn't it? Mm. But it wasn't always like that. There was a I mean, no, like, not when we joined. It wasn't a lot of older cops, but but in the last. 15, 10 to 15 years of my service, mm. it was mostly younger people or younger service people yeah. on the front line. Um, I mean, they're going to need some bloody good sergeants, aren't they? Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. And, and, and some, some good leaders yeah. to, to help them. Yeah, and that's my concern as well. My concern is that um, it's, going to be, it's going to be the blind leading the blind. Um, the, other, the other thing that concerns me as well, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, is that because the um, terms and conditions of employment are now much less attractive um, to retain people in the organisation for the, the pensions that we all sort of took for granted, which kind of kept people in the organisation and saw it as a career, long-term career, um, those, that's gone now and there's very much a sort of much more short-termist mentality. So, so my concern, I suppose, is that you've got this large influx of very inexperienced people over the next three to four years, a massive attrition rate of people leaving. So those complex crime types like murder, terrorism, serious sex offences, that kind of stuff, that you requ requires a real depth of investigative experience to deal with. My fear is that in between five and 10 years time, those offence types are gonna be, they're gonna really struggle to investigate those mm -hmm. properly. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I do. It's um, so it's a bit of a loaded question, wasn't it? It's going to be very. It's going. It is going to be. Um, but society's changed, though, hasn't it? 
Ian, when 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 you did join the police, you expected to be a police officer the rest of your life, mm. and um, they don't now, do they? Like you say, they a lot of them will join for five or six years. Mm. If if you then add into the mix that the starting salary is circa twenty grand, mm. well, if 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 they're looking to recruit people of, you know, some worldly experience, uh, that would be very difficult to deal on twenty grand a year. I mean, for example, my son's 24, just, mm. um, and, and he, he's on over 30,000 doing his job. If he wanted to join the police, he couldn't afford to live in the house, is he? Yeah. So th- and that's a problem. That's a problem. But I don't, I don't know how you, I don't know how, I haven't got yeah. the answers for that. But you're right, if you've got, you know, the vast majority of services, of, of people in the service have got less than, say, eight, eight years' experience. Yeah. It is going to be difficult to fill those highly skilled um, technical positions. Having said that, you know they are—they're already recruiting directly into detective constable positions, aren't they? They are. But I think you know the feedback I'm hearing is that a lot of them are having a real kind of wake-up call on their realizing the sort of you know what they've actually taken on. And I'm, I'm also hearing quite a lot of them are asking now to go back and become uniformed. Are they? Officers. I, I, haven't, I haven't met anybody who's yeah. been directly recruited as a detective. But um, I, I, I don't know that there's an answer to that question, if I'm honest. Mm. All that, it was more of a statement, wasn't it? Than a yeah, question. Yeah. yeah, 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 it was, to be fair. But listen, mate, I'm conscious of the time. Um, You've been an absolute star. It's been it's been really lovely chatting to you. It's been fascinating, um, and I and I really you know, I've enjoyed chatting about the the old days. Um, and it's always interesting to get your perspective on on the way things have been and the way things are and the way things might be in the future. So, um, thanks ever so much, Clive. I really appreciate it. Good to see you. It's been great, and I uh, look forward to going for a pint with you soon. Don't shoot yourself, this dog. <laughs> <laughs> Try not to. <laughs> so there you go. The unchanging, irrepressible and extremely impressive Clive Burgess, who I had the pleasure to work for for quite a few years. It was such a absolute joy to see him again. That's probably the first time I've seen him um, for, oh my goodness, four or five years probably. And, um, yeah, he was looking well and, uh, yeah, living in this ridiculous cottage in um, somewhere that looked like a set from um, a Beatrix Potter uh, film. So he's obviously the local bit of rough in the village, um, uh, the Nana's favourite. So, so yeah, um, brilliant to chat with him. So there's a, a kind of a couple of key things, really, for me out of that, key takeaways, I suppose. First thing I'd say is that Clive's a really good example of someone who um, changed over a period of time and it was really interesting to see his personality and his management style change from being really quite, um, I suppose, borderline brutal really uh, when he was a newly promoted superintendent, 39-year-old, very driven, um, very uncompromising, but very capable, you know, he, he wasn't, uh, you know, someone who uh, tolerated fools, but 
but he he knew what he was talking about and um you know his advice operationally was always absolutely spot on um and any sort of significant incident uh, murders shootings um serious disorder anything like that he was absolutely all over it and and you just knew 100% that um, he was in charge and it, and the decisions that he would make would be absolutely the right decisions. Um, and then as his career developed and, and we kind of crossed paths again uh, later on, uh, his style definitely mellowed. Um, he was still a, a fairly uncompromising character in many ways, but I think the human side of him was much more evident. And I think he'd obviously been on something of a journey um, as we all do, as we as we as we kind of grow a bit older, and we sort of some of those rough edges get get worn off, I suppose. Um, so the the second um, takeaway for me out of that interview was was his description of that uh, really interesting description of that conversation at Brams Hill during his senior um, command course, sorry, strategic command course. Which for those people listening. I don't understand what that is. Uh, when you reach the rank of chief superintendent, you can go on a selection process in order to sit the strategic command course uh, at Bramshill, which is the police staff college. It doesn't actually exist anymore because like so many other things in policing, it's been sold off. It was a lovely big sort of country house down in the, in the south uh, of England, um, I believe. Never actually been there. But... Um, yeah, that description of him sort of effectively doing his training to become an assistant chief constable and, and asking Dennis O'Connor, who was the uh, chief inspector of constabulary at the time, a perfectly reasonable question of, um, uh, you know, how can you possibly suggest that things can be better um, by losing many, many thousands of police officers nationally and to be effectively treated like a naughty schoolboy who had asked a difficult question. Um, I mean, that just, to me, that, that shows, just proves really um, what I've been saying in my book and, and many times on blogs and in this podcast, that there is a massive, massive disconnect. There has been a massive disconnect between those most senior people in the organisation and practitioners, the 97, I think it's 97.5% of people in the organisation of PC sergeant and inspector ranks, there, there has been a, a complete absence of leadership uh, at the top. And um, they acquiesced to all of this nonsense coming from the Home Office and from Theresa May uh, and failed to support the organisation at the time when it needed um, strong, confident um, leadership most uh, so f f for Clive effectively to be called out and to be told to shut up because he was asking perfectly reasonable questions which we now know um, you know the disaster that unfolded um, you know four or five years after that conversation that he described um, nationally uh, well you know it speaks for itself really so anyway right listen um, I've got some a couple of fantastic guests coming up in the next couple of podcasts. Um, today I'm going to be interviewing Chief, my very first Chief Constable, uh, Chief Constable Nick Adderley from um, Northamptonshire Police. Uh, Nick has been um, quite outspoken um, about the way that things are happening to policing at the moment, which is so refreshing um, from a Chief Constable to hear that. Um, 
And uh, so, yeah, looking forward to chatting to him. And then on uh, my next interviewee, which, again, I'm really looking forward to um, talking to, I'm talking going to be talking to Stuart Davidson. Now, Stuart Davidson came to prominence uh, back in the mid-2000s when he wrote two books, one of which was called Wasting Police Time, and a uh, second book was called Wasting More Police Time, and he was effectively an, an anonymous police blogger who went by the name PC David Copperfield, and eventually he was outed as a Staffordshire police officer, Stuart Davidson. Uh, he received an awful lot of um, press and media coverage at the time because he was exposing a lot of the nonsense that was going on in policing nationally. That went down like a bowl of cold sick with senior cops. Uh, and the net result of that was that he ended up leaving the police um, and moving to Canada, where he is now a police officer in Canada. So I'm really looking forward to talking to him about his whole experiences of publishing those books, um, trying to maintain his anonymity, because um, they were bestsellers at the time, and, uh, and his experiences of policing in Canada. So yeah, looking forward to that. Right, uh, enough of that. Thank you ever so much for listening, and uh, speak to you soon. Bye. Once we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his feet. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. <laughs>